I want you to let your minds wander for a second. I want you to think about the things in life that tick you off, things that make you uncomfortable, the things that are messy or out of control. You might have a vast spectrum of things running through your brain right now. You may be thinking about the annoyance of the toothpaste tube that's been squeezed in the wrong way. You may be thinking about fingernails being dragged across the chalkboard. On the other end of the spectrum, perhaps your greatest annoyances are at the government, or health care, pension plans, criminal justice system, or um, <clears throat> um, the education system. Whatever the case may be, let's suppose that we collectively decide the best course of action would be to dissolve our current political system and reappoint a monarch. Now, I know that Canada technically has a queen, but she's more or less a figurehead representing Canada's historical roots. I'm talking about a ruling monarch. So, Joel, what do you think? Who should be king? Or queen? Yeah, what sort of person would make the best king or queen of Canada? <laughs> My wife. <laughs> 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 wow, that's a good answer. What do you think the king or queen of Canada should be like? Uh, well, uh, my wife would be the best looking one. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get any farther than this today. <laughs> what kind of qualities would a king or queen of Canada need to have? Let me think of my wife's qualities now. Uh, somebody who is uh, integral, uh, somebody who leads by example, and uh, probably a smart dude, or or do that, right? And um, what are some things that you would not want in a king? Dishonesty. Dishonesty. Yeah, or just like uh, Mike said, not leading by example. Someone that does not lead by example. Would anyone be good enough to rule the kingdom of Canada? I don't know. I don't know. I think whoever we chose, except for maybe Sharon Schachter, <laughs> there would probably be a whole group of people that would be uncomfortable or upset with the choice. Right? And it really would be just kind of setting them up for failure. And now, as we read some of the stories in the Bible, it's easy to gloss over some of the most simplistic human matters. Last week, Mike talked about how the Israelites came to Samuel and said they wanted a king to solve their problems. Such a transition would be as messy for them as it would be for us, to completely scrap their whole political system and start over with a new one. You know, it would be messy, like figuring the ins and outs of a new government. It's crazy. I mean, if you don't believe me, just look at some of the modern examples like Iraq or Russia and how well are those situations working out, right? Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's a struggle. Then there is the matter of actually choosing who that new leader would need to be. Who is going to be king? And as far as choices go, Saul 
seemed like he was the perfect fit. That is really distracting. <laughs> it's just part of my voice. If you talk to me in person, that's what I sound like. Anyway, Saul, in Hebrew, is that, his name is actually Shaul, and it means the one asked for. Hey, man, that's perfect, right? We're asked, looking for a king. My name is the one you asked for. <laughs> and um, in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, it describes him as a man of good character, good standing, both socially and physically, that he literally stood head and shoulders above everybody else in the land. Not only that, but he had a strong sense of family, and he cared about the small economic investments that they had. At least, that's how I read it. When I look in the text, and it says that his family is missing some donkeys, so he goes to look for them. And he doesn't just, you know, oh, no, I don't see them anywhere, but he actually searches the whole country. And he didn't just take a day or two. He went all over the place, and he was so uh, distraught about this that he sought out God's help. And that seemed like the last ingredient needed to make him the perfect king of Israel. And that was this humility. He knew when to ask for help. When Samuel approached Saul about God's plan to make him the first king, he needed some convincing. And so he was exposed to some signs and wonders that confirmed it on several occasions. And it was such a miraculous thing that there's this phrase that came about in in Israel called, and it said, um, is Saul among the prophets? And that went viral. And it meant, I guess miracles can happen. Like, and that was something that carried on throughout their language. And yet, with all these things that came to be, when it time to came, came time to actually make him the ruler, he hid. He hid away in the, in the baggage compartment. And I honestly, I don't blame him. And as much as I might complain about the political systems that we have, I actually would never want the job of president, prime minister, or king. And I would encourage you to read through these chapters sometime to see what that process was like for them. It's interesting, though, is in the original Hebrew, it seems that Saul was not actually initially anointed as king at all. Now, the word in Hebrew for king is melech. But Samuel when he anointed him, like we saw in the scene here, actually anointed him with the word nagid, which means leader or commander. Now, I'm not really sure why. It could be that Samuel was behind it. I mean, the people asked for a king. Samuel knew what kings would become. That we understand that why we really wouldn't want a king in Canada, because kings can become tyrants, just trying to get their own way, and then there's no way to hold them accountable, right? Sam, we know this from history, but Samuel actually understood that from foresight. And, and this diff, subtle name change could have been his way of protecting them. On the other hand, the subtle difference could have come from Saul himself, that he was too scared or nervous or humble to actually become the proper king, but was rather willing to compromise and simply become like a military commander, which is what they really needed. Whatever the case may be, it not really matter because Saul like becomes king and not much changes for him. You know, it's not like he moves into the palace because Israel had no palace. They didn't even have a capital city. And we think of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was actually occupied by a whole different nation at that point in time. So what did he do as king? He went back home. 
and he was plowing in the fields and doing his normal work. Being king seemed a lot like jury duty. I don't know. It's interesting is that after Saul's first military victory, the people, not Samuel, take king, take Saul and make him Melech. They make him king. And it's at this point Samuel gives his retirement speech and some warnings to the people and passes the reins as civil leadership to Saul. But spiritual leadership we know from Israel's laws was supposed to remain with Samuel. And this is the first example of the separation of church and state, which we continue to struggle with like 3,000 years later. Now, this all leads to the story that I want to focus on this morning. Uh, I want you to grab a Bible and get yourself to 1 Samuel 13. Now, we have some Bibles put out in the back. There's some tables back there, and we have some, some Bibles in the back. And in those books, the story starts on the page uh, 272. So I have an incentive to do this for the kids especially, but I guess I'll open it up to anybody that really wants to pay that much attention. But I have here in my backpack, I have some candy. Okay. And so if you can, at the end of the service, come up to me and tell me how many times the word the was used between chapters 13 and 15, you can have a piece of candy. And that way I'll know you're actually reading it. And if you can actually memorize um, 1 Samuel 15, 29, I'll give you another piece. If you can get your parents to do it, and I may just, just give you the whole thing. <clears throat> um, so the Bibles are in the back. You can go and get them and, and try to check it out. All right, so now as you're looking that up, 1 Samuel 13, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to play a video for you that kind of sets the scene for the story we're about to dive into. into excuse me. I'm ready. I'm ready. Where is Samuel? He should be here. We must make a sacrifice before we attack. We cannot wait any longer. Fool! May God forgive you! Samuel, where were you? Seven days we have waited. Seven days. My men are deserting. Then be a king. Leave the job of priest to me. Do you think God values your sacrifice more than mine? Samuel. God instructs you. Kill everyone and everything.
We've followed his commands. And what is this bleating of goats in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle and wailing of lambs? Can the dead cry out? And who is this pagan king? He is to be put to death later. When the Lord says spare, you spare. Samuel! You are our prophet, but I am your king. What the Lord gives, you can take away. Are these God's words or yours? Your descendants could have ruled for over a thousand years. Today, God has forsaken you. More divine words. God has torn your power from you. He wants a man after his own heart. I really enjoy watching the Bible miniseries that was produced by HBO because it has the ability to bring these stories to life in a way that's sometimes really difficult when you're reading through the pages of the Bible. Because in the stories in the Bible, they're not always in chronological order. And the narrative sometimes goes in between stories and lists of facts. And yet, if we want to move beyond just some of the mere entertainment value that some of these things can bring in the Bible stories and see if they actually have any weight on how we live our lives, then it'd be best just to look into the book, right? Don't they always say that the book is better? All right. For instance, this clip takes the account of two different stories and combines them into one. So let's read a little bit here to spot a few of the key differences, all right? So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. The context is that this is happening about two years after Saul's reign began. In that time, Saul's moved from self-defense of the land and into some more aggressive military campaigns. And as a result, the enemies are upset and they have assembled a massive army in Israel's territory. So it started in verse 5. It says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgad, Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So the first thing I noticed, the difference between the text to the screen, is that when Saul and his companions are on that cliff, and they come and look over at the enemy camp, how many people did it look like they were there? Like a handful, right? Like three horses and six guys? I don't know. And the odds seem to be fairly even. But here in the text it says that the enemies were as numerous as the sands on the seashore, which of course is an exaggeration, but we understand what that means. And Saul's army is so afraid of the size of this enemy force that they literally go into hiding in hide behind rocks and in caves. And, and it says in, in verse 15 here that he only has about 600 men left with him. That's not much of an, an army. 
at all. Those are some massive odds. And the reason that, see, that it's unknown, it doesn't say, it seems that Saul hasn't yet given up hope. It seems that he has some communication with Samuel about this event. Uh, some people say that this direction happened in chapter 10, verse 8. Although, if it's supposed to be two years later, I don't really understand, but it could be. Maybe it was a foretelling of this incident. Um, perhaps Samuel did this for all the battles that they faced, or maybe it's just simply unrecorded for us. The important thing is that he waited, and he waited for a whole week. And it reminds me of the scene from Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf says to his friends, Look for me at the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Actually, in studying this, I really felt like Samuel and um, Gandalf had a lot of similar qualities. Um, when Samuel doesn't show up, Saul takes action on himself. So check out verse 9. So he says, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, I saw the men were scattering, and that you didn't come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, the Philistines had come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The question that came to me out of all this is what did Saul actually do wrong? And it isn't actually all that easier to figure out. Uh, commentators speculate, they argue their points. And it's hard to see what you, he did wrong as you try to think what you could have done differently in that situation. I mean, if Gandalf hadn't shown up in Lord of the Rings, like, would he criticize the people for rushing into battle? It seemed noble, right? It seems noble that, that Saul waited. It seemed noble that he was actually, despite these astounding odds, he was still willing to wait and put up a fight. And it seemed noble that he recognized God's role in this. He didn't want to run into it without offering the sacrifice. And he had enough experience in his first two years as in leadership to see that God could do impossible things. So these odds didn't seem that big to him. It seems noble that he was trying to be a king, to rally the troops, and to give him hope. Uh, when he sees that Samuel doesn't appear, um, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't actually think that he's done anything wrong in this interaction. Unlike in the video clip, it doesn't seem like he's angry or agitated. He doesn't try to lie. He doesn't try to cover up what he's done. In fact, he very, has very logical reasons for doing what he did. And yet Samuel calls him a fool, which really should be translated in much harsher and way too uncouth language for me to say on a Sunday morning. Now, did, did Saul just not wait long enough? Was it at dawn on the seventh day that he's supposed to wait, or noon, or right before dark? In any case, if he had only waited a few more minutes, apparently, everything would have been fine. Now, we can get a little bit critical of Saul, maybe, but before we do that, I wonder how many of us fall into the same temptation, right? That we have an inkling of what it is that God wants us to do, but when it takes longer than we expect, we charge into the situation and make it a mess. 
mean, I have a hard enough time waiting at stoplights. We like to have the feeling of control in our lives. But really, how much do we, control do we really have? Was Saul really better off in speeding up the process? Did he suddenly have the numbers to defeat his enemies? We find out that from the topography of the place that they were in that the enemies likely could not have attacked anyway without suffering massive losses. So it would just been easier just to sit there and wait Saul out. And um, if they actually wanted to confront Saul at all, like do they need to go up against these 600 guys? If we understand the geography of Israel, what, what the enemies were doing were coming in halfway through the country and they set up a base there and then they were sending out raiding parties in every direction. And they, they didn't seem to care if Saul was there or not. They were just going to take over the country. Sometimes we feel that God's plan is not a right fit for us simply because we're unwilling to wait long enough to do it the right way. <clears throat> Perhaps we could argue that Saul didn't really do anything wrong. Yeah, he bent a rule about kings not offering sacrifices. But we see other characters in Scripture that bend the rules, and then they're praised for it. So that doesn't make a ton of sense. And the real question here is not Saul's beliefs, because he actually believed in God, right? He, he understood that he needed God's blessing to be successful, and it might not actually be a question of his actions. Other leaders make mistakes much bigger than Saul's, and they're forgiven and restored. So if we consider David, who becomes king after Saul, and David, who's called the man after God's own heart, gets one of his best friend's wives pregnant and then murders him to cover it up. And yet David's dynasty lives on. What's the real difference? Was it merely Samuel's bias? Like even the clip alluded to this interpretation. It was like, Samuel, are these your words or are they God's? And it's like trying to see... The difference, when you're comparing these two kings, it's like trying to see the difference between these two pictures that I'll put up on the screen here. I'm just going to leave that up there. There's nine differences between the top picture and the bottom picture. So if you're really ADD and you can't pay attention, something for you there. They're minor differences, and it's sometimes really difficult to see from the outside. But it's the second story in 1 Samuel, I think, that really highlights the difference. So flip over to 1 Samuel 15. In this incident, Saul is instructed specifically by God through Samuel to deliver justice to the Amalekites for their treatment of Israel. And that was about 300 years in the past. Uh, Saul is instructed, as it says in the video, to kill everything and everyone, even women, children, and animals. This is always the sections of Scripture that I hate because I don't understand. And I don't have time this morning to really dive in too deep about that, which is a shame. And I've talked about it in the last sermon I did in Hosea, and I think this Brad just keeps giving me all these same passages over and over. Um, but I would encourage you to check out, if you hadn't heard it, my message on Hosea, which goes a little bit more in-depth into this, how can God command people to kill? And and see what I have to say in there, which is now available on iTunes, which I found was fantastic. I will say this. At those times that you feel that life has really treated you unjustly 
and that God didn't do anything about it, realize that he takes his promises really seriously. And this is 300 years after the injustice was committed. And to those people that lived at that point, it looked like God never followed through. Who knows what's going to happen in 300 years from now and the injustices that are happening in your life and how God's going to address those. On the other side of this, this is an instruction to an ancient king establishing a physical kingdom. Kings have to deal in matters of life or death when it comes to threats and enemies. To think otherwise is naive. Our world leaders do exactly the same thing every day. And they're held accountable, at least in theory, to the people that they represent. Saul's given a task, and he's held accountable to God, who is the ultimate king of Israel. Would Saul follow the command, or would he not? Of course, we already know the answer from the video clip, but let's read it anyway. Verse 7 of chapter 15. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from one place to another, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all the people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves, the lamb, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised or weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel, where he set up a monument in his own honor, and he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel said, What then is this the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did, not become the head, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of all that was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in, as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command. And your instructions, I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so we can worship the Lord together. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, 
Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Again, the logic that Saul presents is sound. His men put themselves at risk and they deserve a reward. Or, as Saul alludes to here, the fact that they can use these animals for their sacrifices. They're still going to die, but they're going to die in a very positive way. And what about this king? Wouldn't it be better to use him in a political execution rather than just being killed on the field of battle to show the people that he was following God's commands? It's <clears throat> Why let all this stuff go to waste? Samuel makes it clear that following a religion or a practice is not the same as following a person. Saul was missing something in his life, and it was not his beliefs, because didn't even Saul prophesy? Was it was not his behavior so much? I mean, he even repented, and he gave the real reasons for why he didn't follow the commands. It wasn't his beliefs, it wasn't his actions, it was his attitude. And that problem continues to this day. We want things from God. We want to follow, we follow all the right steps. Uh, We read our Bibles every day. We listen to Praise 106.5. We prophesy, we cast out demons. We might heal the sick. We care for widows and orphans. We can believe all the right things. We can act the right way, but without an actual connection to God, Without the source of life living within us, it's worthless and it will be rejected. So no matter how good it looks on the outside, like, I mean, like me, the inside's still rotten. And that's where the analogy breaks down, I think. Still rotten, still sick, still condemned. So who's found nine differences in these pictures yet? You found all nine of them? I'm impressed, like from that far away. That's a hard, yeah. I couldn't, I only found four, so. All right, you're going to have to point them out to everybody afterward, okay? The real and the fake are sometimes so difficult to see. We try over and over and over to see who's out there, who are the real Christians and those who aren't oh, those people aren't real Christians. Oh, those people have got it wrong, and I've got it right. But rather than do that, I want to challenge you. How much of God do you let into your own life? To ask yourself if you're a true follower of Jesus or if you're just going through the motions. If you're trying to gear up your own willpower to act right or good, or if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to mold you and shape you in ways that you can't even understand if you're letting God fill the gaps in your character with grace, or, with, or if you, like Saul, has missed out because you've applied your beliefs to your behaviors, but you haven't applied them to your hearts. Is God enough for you, or do you want God and success? Do you want God and control? What is the true desire of your heart? I had a really weird week. This week, I went to jail. 
I like saying that because it sounds interesting. I went to see a young person that I've known for years, and she had been locked up over doing some stupid stuff. And she was in a place of despair, and she didn't want to be there. And she was, I, I went to meet her, and she was talking about what she was going to say to the judge at her hearing the next day, and how this time in jail has really helped to shape who it is that she wants to be. The desire of her heart was for freedom. The desire of her heart was for new, no, a new, renewed self-control. The desire of her heart was to reestablish herself, to have a family, to have friends that mattered, that she wouldn't just be seeking herself for adrenaline rush or drugs. And then I went and sat in jail, or sat in the courtroom the whole next day, and I watched as the judge interacted with her, and she was released into my custody. And when she came up these stairs and she saw me, she ran towards me and gave me a hug like I've never had before. It was amazing. And then for someone that's been locked up in jail for two months to step outside into the beautiful sun of Friday afternoon, she spun around, looked up in the air, and it was like she was praising God for the miracle he'd done. I'm standing in the back this morning with Eric as we're trying to get this PowerPoint slides to work, and my phone rings, and it's her. She's called me. And she said, I almost ran away last night. The pull, the desire of my heart, I thought it would be for freedom. And now I'm here in this place and I'm free. And all I want is to go back into the behaviors that got me here in the first place. Our heart's desires change at a moment's notice. When we're locked up, we finally are given freedom. And what do we do with that freedom? We put ourselves back in chains. God never changes his heart's desire. His heart's desire is to save this world from sin. His heart's desire is to rescue us from darkness. His heart's desire is that we would have freedom. And he wants to use us to be a part of that process. He wants to use me and he wants to use you to change this world that we live in. But if we are unwilling to align our heart's desires with him, he doesn't change himself to suit us. And if we're unwilling to change ourselves to suit him, then we become unusable. For him. Saul didn't commit some huge crimes. It was simply the attitude of his heart that condemned him to not have the full promises that God was offering. And I would hate to see that my friends, my family here, miss out on the opportunity of what God has planned for you just because you weren't willing to wait just two more minutes. So it's about the heart. And the language of the heart is love, right? Love is a binding force in relationships. It's what will bring you closer to friends and family and enemies. It's much more than that. 
Love is a part of who God is. You cannot separate love from God. It's not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can create. It's, not, it's something that has to be learned and chosen and applied. We see glimpses of it from time to time. And we see the failings of love that's gone wrong. It's not love at all. It ends up in breakups and divorce, affairs, abuse, neglect, violence, rage, crime. All of these things are a result of a world without God, without his true love. A love we do not, nor not, cannot have completely unless it comes from God. For Saul, as king, he was instructed they had to completely destroy the physical enemies to set up his physical kingdom. For us to set up the spiritual kingdom of Jesus in our lives, we have to completely put to death all of our spiritual enemies and not let any of them continue to live. That might be our anger or our gossip, our slander, our division, our self-righteousness, etc., etc., etc. Here's the conclusion to the matter, and it comes from one of the most overused and yet one of the most misunderstood sections of all of the Bible, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. We believe that God is love, and if we believe Jesus is one with God, then Jesus is love, yes? And if we believe that the Spirit of God comes and lives in our lives because we have a relationship with Jesus, then this passage passage can actually be a measuring stick of the attitude of our heart. And so I'm going to read this over, but I'm going to read it in a slightly different way. Because this, this is God's desire for me, and in turn for you. And I should be able to replace my name in this passage and see how well I'm doing. To spot the differences between Danny as I am and the Danny that God wants me to be. So if Danny speaks with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but doesn't love, he's nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. And if Danny speaks God's word with power, revealing all God's mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if Danny has faith to a, says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but he doesn't have love, he is nothing. If Danny gives everything he owns to the poor, and Ivan goes to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but he doesn't have love, he's gotten nowhere. So no matter what Danny says or what he believes or what he does, he's bankrupt without love. I don't want Danny ever to give up. I want Danny to care more for others than for himself. I don't want Danny to want what he doesn't have. I don't want Danny to strut. I don't want Danny to have a swelled head. I don't want Danny to focus on himself. I don't want Danny to force himself on others. I don't want Danny to always say, me first. I don't want him to fly off the handle. I don't want him to keep score of the sins of others. I don't want him to revel when others grovel. I want him to take pleasure in the flowering of truth. I want him to put up with anything. I want him to trust God always, to always look for the best, 
to never look back, but keep going to the end. If Danny can do this, he'll never die. The inspired speech will be over one day. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. Right now, Danny only knows a portion of the truth. And what he says about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, Danny's incompletes will be canceled. When Danny was an infant at his mother's breast, he gurgled and cooed like any infant. When he grew up, he left those infant ways for good. We don't see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through the mist, but it won't be long until the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. We'll see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to lead us towards the consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. So ask yourself, how much of this Christianity thing is you just trying to be happy? Or you just trying to be secure? Or you just trying to be a good person? And how much of it is you actually following Jesus? To obey is better than sacrifice. Is God alone enough for you? I'm going to ask the team to come up here and just finish off with the song. There's going to be people here that want to pray for you. And so I'm going to ask you, if you're sick of mundane Christianity, if you're sick of living a life going through the motions, if you at one time had a thriving relationship with God but have let things slide, if you can feel the Spirit knocking at the door of your heart right now, I want you to respond. It may be embarrassing. It may be tempting not to respond. After all, everyone here probably thinks you have your life all together, that you're a good Christian who never doubts God's ways. You may believe all the right things. That's great. You may even be a great servant here at the church, and that's awesome. But without love, without the real relationship of Jesus in your life, it's nothing. So I want you to be obedient, to step up to the front here, to the people that can pray with you. Get things back on track. Let God, not your beliefs, not your actions, but God himself be enough to change you. If you need someone to pray with you, if you need someone to process, if you need to come and tell me everything I said was crap, that's fine. I'd love to enter into dialogue with you about where you're at and what it is that you need to step one step closer to Jesus. And right now, I just want to put a blessing upon you that the Lord would bless you and keep you. The Lord would cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace and that he'd also give you unrest in the spots where he is not in control in your life. And let today be the starting place of a new you. Jesus, thank you for my friends here. Thank you for the love that you've shown to us. Help us to take you seriously 
and to obey. Amen.